Well, today in Mastermind, we're looking at the topic of guilt. And I think for many people, guilt feels like a big blanket that they're under all the time, and religion seems to be a major source of it. So when is guilt good, and when is guilt bad, and how can we have appropriate guilt, and maybe not condemning inappropriate or disabling guilt? John, tell us a little bit about guilt and what role it plays in our life, both for good and for bad. Certainly. So for those that don't know me, my name is John Rothlo. I've been a mental health therapist for 10 years, and oftentimes we'll look at guilt, too. That's part of when somebody comes in, that's something that they may be struggling with. And when you say guilt, I automatically go to Monty Python uh, and the scene where the monks are bashing themselves in the head. Yeah, oh, me, half me, half me, hey. Yeah, one of my favorite scenes. Exactly. Scene. Because when I think of that, I think of, well, what are they guilty for? That's the first question that pops them. What did they do? Why are they beating themselves over the head? And that is really what a good summarization of what guilt is. Guilt is this notion that you've done something, you've done something grave, something that's against your values, your, your value system, you've, and you've got to pay for it. That's guilt. You've got to make it better. Maybe, you know, I borrowed money from you and I didn't pay you back. My guilt might compel me to want to pay you back because that's important for us as a society to have that. However, we have what's called inappropriate guilt. And that's where I get stuck in this pattern of bashing my head in with that wood tablet of saying, okay, that thing I did, whatever I'm guilty of, I didn't suffer nearly as much as I should have. And so I, I put myself in situations where I make myself suffer. Yeah, people call it penance, right? They call it, you know, punishing myself. So how do you determine how bad it was what I did? And then how many smashes on the head does it count? And who determines that? Is it two smashes? Is it 10 smashes? And I know people have been smashing themselves in the head for decades. And it's like, you know, at what point are you forgiven? How would you know if you're forgiven? But on the other side, like if somebody doesn't have guilt, right, that's pathological, right? I could hurt somebody and I don't even care. There's no empathy. And that's, it, and psychologists would argue that's why we have guilt is it helps keep the fabric of our society together. We're not going to try to hurt each other because as a society, we want to grow and we want to benefit. Me helping you benefits me. Me hurting you may hurt me in the long run. But when it comes to guilt and who pays and how much have they paid, that's a really tough question. And that's usually independent and individualistic, I usually say, what makes the situation whole? Where at least as whole as it can get. Or the better question is, what good is it going to do you? Bashing your head 10 times versus 100 times, does that make the situation better? Sure, you can hit yourself on the head, but is it helping? And oftentimes that'll lead us into discussions about what should I do? And I often say, you know, the change is the best penance you can make. That person doesn't, they're tired of hearing, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry, honey, I, I'll never do that again. I'll never, yeah, I'll never. They've heard I'm sorry so many times it's lost that power and meaning. The question is, what changes can you make to, to be that, that penance? Because that change just becomes a penance. And that new version of you, they'll rejoice in that much better than they will if you smack your head a hundred times or ten times. That's interesting. The Bible calls this kind of idea restitution, which is not are we uh, sorry for what we did, but it leads to change, and that leads to making restitution, like putting uh, your money where your mouth is, so to speak. In fact, the contrast in the Bible is that guilt is good. Um, however, it's a type of guilt. The Bible calls it godly sorrow. It leads to you being freer. It leads to you making positive changes. So that's godly sorrow is positive guilt versus condemnation, constant being in a blanket of condemnation is debilitating. So we're going to look at that today. What's the difference between godly sorrow and living in condemnation? 
So maybe you felt that before. Maybe you grew up in a church, whatever it was called, Catholic, Protestant, Baptist, Lutheran, whatever, and you just felt this big blanket of guilt was all over you all the time. And you're like, well, I hear the, the church people, the pastor, the priest saying this is good news. Why do I walk out of this place and not feel like it's a lot of good news? What is the good news? So in one sense, guilt is needed because there's wrongdoing. As we learned several weeks ago, there's a moral code placed on our heart that we violate. And so it's true that there are certain wages we're owed for what we've done wrong. On the other hand, we want to acknowledge that guilt, but we also want to be free from that guilt and know that we're forgiven, and that can be a motivation for new type of living and new type of thinking. We're going to delve in that today in a little letter Paul wrote to a group of Christians and people kicking the tires in Christianity called Romans. And we've been learning in this series that we can master our mind by renewing our mind, that you can be transformed in the way you think, the way you relate to other people, by not being conformed to certain patterns of thinking that you may not even realize you have, but you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By doing so, you can find that God is good and he has a good and perfect will for your life. In the series, we've been describing kind of this phenomena that often something happens to us, right? Something bad, let's just say, and we do something bad, something bad happens, and that person or circumstance leads to a way we think about it. And we don't react to people and circumstances, we react to what we think about people and circumstances. And what we think about something leads to how we feel about that, and what we feel about that leads to how we react to that. And so I want to give you four ways to think about suffering, when somebody does something wrong, when you do something wrong, and how maybe we can react to that. So imagine here at the top of the, of the mastermind chart, these are different examples of you doing something wrong or your spouse doing something wrong or, or bad circumstances in your life. This kind of all the philosophies in the world can be summed up in these four statements. The first one is suffering is my fault. So something bad happens, could be a natural disaster, it could be you don't get a job opportunity. It could be you get fired. Whatever it is, something bad happens. And most people, whether they call themselves Christians or not, think through the lens of karma. It's my fault. Life is punishing me. God is punishing me. Somebody's out to get me. And you can imagine if you think that every time something bad happens, that you're being punished and condemned by God or life, that thought is going to lead to a certain type of feeling. <laughs> Right? which is, I'm not sure I like life, or I'm not sure I like this God. And that feeling, based on that thought, based on that circumstance, is going to lead to me reacting by disting myself from God. And often you'll hear people say, hey, I believe in karma, you know, tipping is good karma. But if you really believe in karma, that means everything bad that's ever happened to you, or is happening to you, is the universe punishing you for something you did in this life or the last. Does that ring true? Does that feel right? That is one of the solutions philosophy has for how we process suffering in our life is, well, just know it's always your fault for what you did in this life or the last. Another way to think about suffering or challenges or difficulty in your life is kind of the Richard Dawkins approach, which is that in a world of blind random chance, DNA neither knows nor cares. Evil happens. I think about the fact that it's normal and natural. You know what? Sometimes in a world of blind random chance, good people have bad stuff happen to them and bad, stuff, bad people have good stuff happen to them. But isn't there something in you when you go to a funeral, you say, that child shouldn't have died? When you see a mass murder, don't you say it shouldn't be this way? 
it doesn't feel normal and natural to be in a world that's filled with such tragedy. It's like you're saying, no, this can't be right. I see it. This is happening all the time, but it shouldn't be this way. And therefore, I feel angry about it all the time. And who's going to fix this? Well, apparently no one's going to fix it. It's normal and natural. Hitler's never going to be held account. Good people are never going to be finally rewarded for what they've done. And therefore, there's certain actions that come from realizing that, I guess, suffering is normal and natural. There's a third way to process suffering, and that is the idea that it's an illusion. This is what Buddhism teaches. Buddhism teaches that when you experience suffering in your life, it's because you don't realize you need to think about the fact that this world is a dream. To quote the Matrix, there is no spoon. It's a dream world that we're in, and your suffering is caused by your craving. If you didn't think you were a person, and you didn't crave attachment, if you didn't need appreciation and respect and different things, if you would think differently and realize there isn't really a world here, then you would feel a lack of attachment because you're in a dream, and therefore you would react, and the suffering wouldn't be that big a deal. That is a way philosophies try to deal with suffering. And Christianity has a little bit different way, and it's complex. It says suffering, when bad stuff happens to you, it's like a mixture of yellow and blue and different colors together. It's suffering is caused by the complexities of a broken creation. And what does that mean? Well, in the book of Romans, he says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Which means if you understand the main message of the Bible, when bad stuff happens, it's not because God is condemning you. It's not because God's trying to get you or God's trying to punish you. There can be right now, not when you get to heaven, no condemnation in Christ Jesus. All right, well, then what is it? Then it goes on to explain a few other things. It says, well, first of all, you need to think about your suffering through this lens. For I consider the sufferings that I'm going through are mild or they're not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. In other words, the Bible is saying a couple things. One, that when bad stuff happens, it's bad. But compared to how God's going to reward you for it, you can focus, kind of like no pain, no gain. Whatever bad's come into my life or evil's come into my life, God's going to use that to produce good. And he's going to one day reward me for enduring and going through that. And so there's a thought process when you go through suffering of you're comparing what you're going through, which is bad, to how God's going to reward you. And that becomes a way to motivate you. God's going to reward me for, for the endurance I do in this. And that gives you hope. And so that thought leads to hope. And God is going to use this in my life. God's going to reward me. And even if in this life I don't get rewarded, God's going to ultimately reward me in the future. It gives you hope. It gives you endurance. It also teaches you that it's not meaningless suffering. It can be meaningful suffering. But he had something else here. He says, for the creation was subject to futility, for the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Like, Chad, was that supposed to say something and was that supposed to help? (laughs) Here's what he's saying. You need to understand that our current world is out of sync. And because it's out of sync with God, it's groaning to be fixed. In other words, here it says the world is always operating right and it's punishing you because you're, you're owed it. This is the world's supposed to be broken. Get used to it. This is the world's a dream world. Get used to it. This world says, no, no, no. It didn't used to be this way. The reason there's something in your heart that longs for a world with no pain and no agony and no no unjust killing is because there's an echo of that in your heart. There once was a creation where there was no suffering and pain. 
And the echo of that is still in you. And that's why you're comparing the current world to the world that was. So it makes sense of your anger. It makes sense of your frustration. It makes sense of your longing for it to be different, not normal and natural. But the creation groans for God to come back and fix it. And he hasn't done it yet. But he will. And that's frustrating. Because God says not yet. But not yet is a whole lot better than not ever. Which is what atheism answered the problem of evil is. Not ever. Hitler's never going to be held account. And good people are never going to be rewarded. So what it's saying is all of creation longs to be fixed. And God will one day fix it. So you can have hope now. He'll bring meaning out of your suffering, but he will one day fix what's broken. So all of this is a way of processing or thinking through suffering. Now this includes when life makes us suffer. It also includes when we do something wrong, how does God process it? Is God trying to punish us? Does God say, get used to it? Does God say, this is complex? Sometimes it was your fault. You're reaping what you sowed. Sometimes it's not your fault. You're reaping what a drunk driver sowed. Go back to that previous slide. Suffering is the result of the complexities of a broken creation. It makes sense of why you're bothered by it, how to find hope in the midst of it, and the hope that God will finally fix it. I remember when we first adopted my son, I found out he had blindness and eventually autism. I went and found a special needs dad who lived in my neighborhood. And I said, hey, your son's about 10 years ahead of me. I need to know what I need to process this to be the dad I want to be, to be the husband I want to be, to lead my family through this lens. And we just had the most real, honest, guttural meeting down at Starbucks in Merrimont 12 years ago. We got done. He said, by the way, I heard you're a pastor. I said, oh, I am. He said, well, I'm an elder at my, my church. I go to a Christian science church, and I studied Christian science in, in seminary. And he said, uh, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, do you think God heals people? I said, yeah, I think God heals people. And I know, I've read Mary Baker, and she's big on God healing. He said, well, yeah, well, that's what I teach too. And he said, well, I think that sickness and death and pain are unreal and that life and joy and peace and kindness are real. And so kind of what we teach is get away from the unreal stuff and move over to the real stuff, which is kind of nice. But if you look at that map there, you know where that teaching is? Right here. Suffering and pain is unreal. It's a dream. You need to realize it's not true. So we got done talking, and I said, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, what do you do when God doesn't heal? Right? Your son has special needs. My son has special needs. I believe God can heal, but sometimes he doesn't. How do you process that? He said, well, I'm not sure. I said, well, I believe there once was a world that was good, and because of genetic breakups and brokenness of, you know, maybe the, the, the drugs that were taken by the birth mother, you know, that's, Quinn is suffering the complexities of a complex world. He said, well, I don't believe the world used to be good, and I don't believe that something broke it, you know, back in time. And I said, well, then why is your son not healed if God can heal? He said, well, I, I guess it's because I don't have enough faith. See him switch? I guess my son's special needs are real. So I guess it's my fault. My son is not healed because of my lack of faith. And you can just feel the guilt and shame. These are the only four ways that history has ever come up with processing the problem of evil. 
And I want to propose to you that how you think about suffering and how it applies to when you do something wrong and God, when life does something wrong in the universe, when your kids do something wrong and how you react to them, when your spouse does something wrong and you interact with them, this applies to everything. And I want to teach you or maybe try and help you with something I'm trying to learn, which is how do we swap wages for gifts? Wages is life is always giving me my wage. You owe this. You deserve this. That's what karma is. Karma teaches that the universe is paying you your wage for what you did wrong. And many of us have picked that up from, again, whatever philosophy, whatever religion, whatever denomination we came to, and so we do the same thing. We beat ourselves up. I'll never forgive myself for that. We beat other people up. We got to punish our kids and we'll finally be obedient. What if we swapped wages for gifts? Let's talk about the two different swaps. The first swap is to swap deserved wages for undeserved gifts. We all know that we do stuff wrong. We violate our own conscience. We break our own moral code. We do the wrong thing. So we know that there are times we deserve punishment. That's just true. We know there's times that our boyfriends and our spouses and our kids deserve punishment. But if all you ever do is give out punishment, if, if all you ever do is give out wages, you'll destroy your relationships. You know the fastest way to get divorced? Only give your spouse what they deserve. Only respect them when they're respectable. Only love them when they're lovable. Only be kind to them when they deserve it. That's a, might that be fair? There's nothing wrong with that, actually. That's a good moral code, right? You earned it, you get it. And it will destroy your life. You want to know how to crush your kid's spirit? Always give them wages. Only do nice things when they deserve it and not when they don't. That's what Paul's saying here in Romans. He says, the wages of sin, when you work, you get wages. And may have approached life with work. When we do well, we get well. When we don't get well, well, we expect God to punish us. And you're constantly in debt. Oh, my goodness. I just, I've done some bad stuff, but I can't make up for the good stuff. And eventually I thought I could make up for it, but the more good chances I get, the more bad chances I get. And I just am constantly indebted. And the wage I'm getting is what I deserve. And the wages of sin is death. But God's got a different way. Instead of giving us what we deserve, God's willing to not give us our wages, what we deserve, but give us a gift from God that's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He came to die, and he's punished for us. We've got to stop beating ourselves up because Jesus was beaten up for us. And you can be free from self-hatred. You can be free from, I'm never going to forgive myself. You can say, man, he was beaten enough for me. He paid the payment. And I switch from wages to gifts. Now to understand that, we need to understand two words, which is grace and mercy. This is what a relationship needs to survive. You need to understand God does this for you, and when something bad's happening, it's not him punishing you. It's just the complexity of a broken world. Grace is giving someone what they don't deserve and they didn't earn. I'm going to love you when you're not particularly lovable today. I'm going to respect you even though you haven't acted really respectable today. I'm going to forgive you even though you did something wrong. That's grace. I'm going to accept you even though you got some warts and all. I'm going to love you even with the ways you don't live up to my standards or your own. So grace is giving someone something they didn't deserve. Mercy is not giving you what you do deserve. So yes, we need to be consistent in our discipline with our kids or employees or whatever, but sometimes if you always give people just the black and white Sometimes you, just, you say, yeah, you know you deserve this. Can you acknowledge you deserve this? But we're going 
We're going to scale that back and give you some mercy. You're not going to get everything you deserve. You're not going to get the full punishment. You're not going to get the full consequence. You're not going to get the full distance that happens because of what you said to me. Grace and mercy is a way that we switch deserved wages for undeserved gifts. There's two different mindsets. So here's how this plays out kind of in in a regular marriage or life. The the one mindset is the you better, you ought, you owe mindset, right? Because we got a wage relationship in our marriage. You better, you ought, you owe me, you said it, I did this last time, you owe me this time. And again, you say, well, that's fair, yeah. But if you're always interacting with you oughta and you better and you owe, you're going to eventually resent each other because you're only giving what the other person deserves and nothing more. In fact, Paul kind of explains this. Again, he uses a little bit of weird religious language to say it. But he says this, the law, this kind of you better, you ought, you owe, is different from a different law, the law of the spirit of life. It's a different way of thinking about this. It comes from Jesus Christ. It makes you free from the law of sin and death, the you better, you ought way of thinking. For what the law could not do, what the you better, you ought, you owe method couldn't do, this new law of freedom in Christ could do. Well, what's this other way? What other choices are except saying you owe, you better than you ought? The other focus is I will. I will meet your needs. I welcome your needs. And I want to help in this. So rather than always having to tell the other person what they ought to be doing, you can say I want to meet your needs, even though they're not my needs, even though they're not what I think is important. I, I, I want to meet your needs and I welcome your needs. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to give you more than you deserve. And why would Jesus Christ have anything to do with that? So when somebody does something wrong and they deserve to suffer for it because they were crabby or they were critical or they were impatient, you say, you know, what do you need right now? I welcome your needs. I want to meet those needs. And if it's for unconditional acceptance, if it's for love, if you just need some comfort right now, the reason I welcome your needs is because God welcomed my needs. And he met my needs. And he welcomed the opportunity to meet my needs. And he didn't want to go to the cross, but he said, not my will, but yours be done. And so you know what God did? When we were doing the wrong thing, instead of punishing us, instead of saying get used to it or punishing us, God said, hey, when stuff comes into your life, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to offer you forgiveness. And I was willing to adapt myself from God to man to meet your needs. I welcome the opportunity not to give you wages, but to give you gifts. And if God does that for you, and you really feel that and experience that, you say, you know what, if God did this for me when I deserved wages, he got a gift, then I want to do that for my employees and for my kids and for my spouse. The way you think about God, it begins to affect how you think about life. He goes on in, in the book of Romans, and he says, this is what I want to tell you about, guys. This law, the spirit of life way of doing things, the I welcome, I want, and I will to help you, it comes because of what God did by sending his own son. If God did adapt to me, how could I not adapt to my spouse? If God did adapt to me, was gracious to me, not giving me what I deserve, maybe I need to dial back the consequences of how I'm disciplining my kids right now. We have baptisms two or three times during the summer when it gets warm out here, and you got one coming up in June if you're interested, and it's such a powerful example of people telling real stories of how they've experienced God's swap from the consequences of religion to the gift of Jesus Christ. This one husband several years ago was getting baptized, and he said, you know, I began to understand that Jesus isn't about a religion, it's about a relationship. It's not about a big blanket of guilt, it's about this gift of grace. 
He said, but I never would have known that had it not been for my wife. He said, I'd heard the term grace, but I saw it in my wife. I'd have a bad day and she'd still be kind. I'd be irritable and she'd be patient. She would give me not what I deserved, but more than I deserved. And I realized that was called grace. And that act of grace began to help me understand if my wife can do that to me, and she says it's because of what God did for her, then maybe I need to meet this God that's done all this for her. And baptism is a picture of that. When you go under the water, it's a symbol that everything you've ever done has been buried in the grave. That's why you go under the water. Everything you've ever done wrong. You're no longer under a big blanket of guilt. There's now, therefore, no condemnation in Christ Jesus. God forgives you your past, your present, and your future. That's not a license to go do the wrong thing. Out of gratitude, you say, I want to do more of the right thing for God who would forgive me all that. Then you come up out of the water like Jesus came out of the grave, and you have a new life, a resurrection life. That's a symbol, and it's a picture of God's grace as a baptism. Hey, if you're interested in being baptized or talking just about this relationship, we'd love to chat with you about that. How about you? Has your parenting, has your marriage become a tit-for-tat, you owe, you better, you ought, or I welcome, I will, and I want to meet your needs? I think it comes back to our second swap. And our second swap is we have a tendency to, to use black and white thinking. And there's something very true about black and white thinking. And it's not wrong, it's just not very life-giving. You did something wrong, therefore, you're going to get punished. And if you start doing something right, then maybe I'll do something nice. Right? I'm saying this is the fast way to get divorced because there's going to be times you have a bad day. And if you always get what you deserve, man, it's going to be like a race to the bottom. What if instead of always black and white, you do something wrong, you get something wrong. You do something right, you get something right. And there's some true stuff in that, right? There's a truism there. But I want to propose to you the way that people change is when they do something wrong, instead of getting that black and white polarized thinking, it's all right or all wrong, you instead swap it for the multicolored gifts of unconditional love. You're angry and you blew up and you lost your temper. I chose to cool down and act with self-control with a gentle word. You chose to do something wrong and it really hurt me, but I chose to forgive you. Just like Jesus sacrificed his own blood to forgive us. You decided to do something wrong and I decided to love you when you're unlovable. That's what Paul's going at here in Romans. He's saying God tried to change us. God demonstrated his love for us and not giving us black and white, you deserve, but rather the multicolored gifts of forgiveness and acceptance. See, brethren, we're debtors. We do the wrong thing. We get a lot of black marks on our daily behavior. When we live according to the flesh, that old black and white, you better, you ought, you better, it, doesn't, it just leads to more death. If you live according to that mindset, you die. It just brings death into your relationships. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your body, and you look at this new way of doing stuff, and he goes on to explain in Romans 8, God has a new type of love that he gives to us when we are debtors, when we are doing the wrong thing. He says, let me tell you about this love of God. In all these things, when you accept God's ultimate forgiveness of you, you're more than a conqueror because you realize that God who made you loves you. He says, let me tell you the kind of love we have. This isn't a, if you do well, you get love, and if you don't do well, then I distance myself kind of love. No, no, look what he says. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor principalities nor powers, nor things present or things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor width, 
or any other created thing will be able to separate you from the love of God once you're in Christ Jesus. He said, this kind of love is an unconditional love. It's I am your father. You are in my family. And even though you might say I hate you, even though your kids may say, you know, I don't love you anymore or I hate your rules, at that moment you're still committed to them. You still show that you are for them and you love them and you care for them because that's what God does for us. God's love, nothing can separate you from love of God. Which means when you're facing suffering in your life, I can't tell you exactly why it's happening. It's complex. It's a broken world with broken people. A little piece might be your fault, another piece might be somebody else's fault. And as you're processing suffering in your life, you might say, well, God must be mad at me. But the one thing the cross teaches us is that whatever's going on, it can't be that God's not for me. It can't be that he doesn't love me. Why? Because look what I'm discovering. He died for me. Whatever's going on here, whatever I don't understand that's going on here, the one thing I can know is that he loves me and is for me. I'll give you an example. When I lived in Chicago, my wife and I used to travel up um, to Lake Michigan, and there's a little park there called Olive Park. We used to love going up there and telling stories and singing songs out by the water and seeing this beautiful reflection of the city. And so I had a surprise. I had a buddy of mine who was on our floor, and he was a Marine. And so he could get stuff done, and he had a truck. So I asked him to take the table from my, my dorm room and some sparkling grape juice um, and some, some flowers that I bought and to drive them out to this park, haul the table all the way out to the edge where we typically would sing some songs and have it there. So he's getting that all set up and we're having this date. And this date is just not going well. And, you know, sometimes it is. I, I've had crabby dates where I've been annoying. Uh, Beth was just not having a good day. And I'm like, well, how about before we head back to the, to the dorm room, um, how about we just go out to, to Olive Park and we'll just, we'll just you know, go out there and tell some stories. I don't want to go out there. Well, how about, how, how about we just go out there and we'll just sing one song? I don't want to sing a song. Just one song. Just one line from one song. So we're going out there to Olive Park. Down there. It's like trying to hug a porcupine, you know. We get out there, and, and she knows that she's been having a bad day and been crabby. And, and as we walk out there, she suddenly sees this table set up and this whole romantic thing, sparking grape juice and flowers. And, 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 and she goes, you did that for me? And I said, yeah. And she just melted. She just began to cry. She goes, I've been such a crab tonight, and I can't believe how much you're loving me and caring for me. And I just really appreciate this. And, and again, that's what melts our hearts when we realize that our spouse loves us in the days we're crabby. Because right, date, what's dating? Sales and marketing. I mean, that's what dating is, right? Sales and marketing. Then you eventually get to know each other and you find out, oh my goodness, wow, we got some real blemishes. We're real debtors. We really do the wrong thing. And when you're in a real committed relationship, you find out who each other really are. And if you use that black and white, only give you good when you do good, I'm telling you, it's going to destroy your relationship. But instead, give unconditional love and respect and meet the needs of, of one another with that multicolored dimension of love. Give me an example, 1950s, true story, a group of missionaries, a guy named Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, and others had trained to go to one of the most toughest places in the world, Ecuador, to talk to the Akua Indians. The Akua Indians were brutal. They just slaughtered people. Anyone from the outside came to trade with them or talk to them, they just killed them. And Jim Elliott and his friends, a bunch of 20-year-olds, some of their wives, they felt compelled to go into this brutal tribe and to teach them about God's forgiveness got all over Life Magazine what happened. For a couple weeks, they flew their planes over and they dropped gifts to let them know they were here from peace to be diplomatic. 
And as the gifts were going by and they saw people from the tribe coming out and enjoying the gifts and waving to them, they thought, we've built enough rapport over the last couple of weeks. It's time to settle in. So they landed their plane on the river by a little bit distance from the village. And they were armed. They had guns. They could have defended themselves. Several of the women came out and they uh, uh, provided the gifts and, and said thank you in whatever way they could communicate at that point. And then what they had heard about came true. Out of the woods came a bunch of the tribesmen armed with spears. And despite the gifts, and despite they were there to tell them about God's forgiveness, they all took their spears and rammed them through and killed Jim Elliot and Nate Saints and all of their friends. Slaughtered them. Elizabeth Elliot, after mourning her husband, made her way back to that village. And she began to tell them that her husband had died for them. More than that, they had killed her husband. And as she began to learn the language, she said, my husband died for you to tell you that my God died for you because my God wants to forgive you. And this violent tribe, known for centuries of murder, began to understand and be open. If that woman, who we killed her husband, wants to tell us about God's love for us, they began to listen to her. Years later, the whole village ends up coming to know Jesus as forgiver, and one man stood up at one of the meetings. He said, he pulled out a spear. He said, this spear has killed 12 men because my heart was black. But now that I know Jesus, my heart has been cleansed, and I don't want to do that anymore. See, the message of Jesus is that God comes to us with gifts, and we stab him in the face and in the chest and say, ah, you don't want the good. You're out to get me. You're trying to punish me. I know what the real life is. I know better than you. And God was willing to die for us, not to give us that black and white wage that we deserve, but rather to give us the gift that he knew we needed. So what if we made these swaps, understood that God's trying to give a gift to us? We give gifts to our spouses and to our employees. What if we began to get out of this black and white thinking and instead look at the multicolor approach to love and forgiveness that might transform lives? Then my hope for you is that as you approach whatever suffering is going on, whatever challenges are going on, that you would learn to control what you can control. See, we can't control people and circumstances and suffering in our life often. But you can control how you think about it. And there are four ways to think about it. Through all the philosophies and all the religions. And the Bible offers one that explains the problem of evil, explains meaning in the midst of evil, and ultimately the solution to evil. How God interacts with us and how we can interact with others. Paul writes another letter to a group in Philippians. He says this, Brethren, whatever things are true... You can control what you think about. Meditate, ruminate, think about these things. I want you to process the evil and suffering and people messing up and screwing up in your life in a different way. True thoughts. And when you begin to control what you can control, thinking my thoughts, understanding how I love you, how I care for you, what I did for you, the things which you learned from me, when you do that, when you think about that, there's a peace of God will be with you. And get that, notice that term, the peace of God. God gives you a kind of peace that transcends your circumstances. He goes on to say, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. Control what you can control. You can't control people and circumstances. 
but you can't control what you think about people and circumstances, and therefore how you feel about people and circumstances, and therefore how you react to people and circumstances. Don't you want more peace in your life? I mean, doesn't that sound pretty good? A peace that surpasses understanding can guard my heart from the feelings that pull me down and guard my mind from the lies that pull me down. We do that by controlling what we can control by meditating on these things. I'm going to invite the band to come out. And I want you to think again about these words. Because this is a song we all know very well, but I want you to think about it a little bit different way. The peace of God can be with us. Not in the future. Right now it can be with you, he says. And that peace of God, when you control what you can control, think about what you can think about truthfully, there's a peace of God that guards your heart and your mind. I want to pray that you will begin to just think about what if, even if you don't believe it, even if you're never going to believe it, what if there was a God who died for you to give you better than you deserve? Might that then want you to give your spouses and your employees and your boss and your friend and even maybe your ex better than they deserve? Let's pray. Father, we want a supernatural peace that transcends understanding. We want a supernatural peace that will allow us to think differently, feel differently, and act differently. God, teach us, give us that gift of peace that can rule in our hearts and guard our minds.